Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Our Father, we thank you for these ancient words ever true. We, we know that they're just as powerful today by the power of your Spirit as they were when they were penned. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power this morning, that these ancient words would transform our hearts, our minds, our lives. I think of those here who are currently in darkness. May they be overwhelmed by the light of Jesus Christ this morning. May they be born again by your Spirit for his glory. Amen. Please be seated. The flamboyant 19th century author Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) Ever since our first ancestors succumbed to the devil's temptation in the Garden of Eden, our entire world has been subjected to destruction, disaster, to darkness. It's abundantly clear to anyone paying attention and intellectually honest that we live in a broken world. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that what happened because of Adam and his fall explains almost everything we see in our world today. I say almost everything because as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the entirety of human history can can be explained by two things. What happened because of Adam and what happened and will happen because of Jesus Christ. The light, the ministry of Jesus changes everything. And he will change you if you hear his word this morning. As we continue in Matthew's gospel this morning, we will see that Jesus is that light that has dawned on this dark world. Last week we saw the first part of preparing Jesus for his ministry with John baptizing Jesus. Today we will see the second part of this preparation and the launching of Jesus' ministry. So immediately after his baptism, where in dramatic fashion, the Father voiced his approval from heaven and the love he has for his Son, and being anointed by the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit leads Jesus into the final preparation for his ministry, a test which Jesus passes. This is number one in your outline. I encourage you to follow along uh, in your own Bibles or in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you um, with the sermon outline as a guide. Let's start reading together in verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted By the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. First, let's get our our bearings here. This word translated tempted can mean tempted. Or tested. And I think uh, people get caught up on, on this, and I think unnecessarily so. It's best to think 
of this word meaning both here because it depends on the perspective and the motivation. Tempting is the goal of trying to get a person to go contrary to the will of God. So the motivation is evil. That's what Satan does. We know that from James that God does not tempt anyone. Testing, on the other hand, has as its goal proving someone faithful to God's will. So the motivation and intention is that the person pass the test. That's what God does. Okay, so both are happening here. God's intention is that Jesus pass the test, which is why he's brought here. Satan's intention is that Jesus fail the test. Second, in terms of our bearings, we will lose the impact and importance of what Jesus does here if we misunderstand the person of Christ. So just a refresher or reminder of basic biblical Christian Christology or or theology about Jesus. Christ, being God, took on human nature, okay? He did not transform into a man and cease to be God, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. That's not what happened. He also did not blend his natures together as sort of a part God, part man. Instead, Christ took on an additional nature, an additional human nature and to operate according to that nature. So as we read this, remember, Jesus is resisting temptation according to his human nature, not his divine nature. Jesus is operating here as a man, and that's really important for a number of reasons. So after fasting for 40 days, he was hungry as any other man or human would be. And the devil seizes this opportunity of human weakness to try to get the Son of God outside the will of God. Hey, if you're the Son of God, you have power to satisfy your hunger right now. Transform these stones into bread. Problem solved. Here's what Satan is doing. Jesus has been declared the Son of God from heaven at his baptism. Among other things, as we saw last week, Son of God is royalty language. Okay? Satan wants Jesus to capitalize on his royalty now. Take the glory now. But that isn't his mission. Not only is he the Son of God, as we saw last week at length, he's also the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. Do you remember that? The one who would suffer. The one who takes the humble path. Satan wants Jesus to abandon his mission of suffering and use his position selfishly. He wants Jesus to capitalize on his elevated status instead of taking the humble path set by God. Take the shortcut, in other words. Jesus answers Satan by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus is not opposed to food, of course, but he is opposed to disobeying God. Namely, in his case, abandoning the suffering, humble mission that is before him. His path to glory, and it is to glory, but his path to glory is through suffering, and he knows that. So in effect, Jesus is saying the most necessary part of life is not food. It is the power of God's word that sustains and gives life. I will obey that versus using miracles to gratify 
myself. Now, there's something else happening here that Matthew wants us to see. As we noted last week, Jesus is not only the new and better Adam, as we sing in that hymn, succeeding where Adam failed. He's also the true Israel, succeeding where Israel failed. That's why the Deuteronomy reference is interesting. Just a few verses after that, those words in, uh, that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, we read this. As a father disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Okay, he's talking to Israel. So in this very passage, Israel is referred to as the son of God. Okay, Matthew has shown us, as we saw last week, uh, or weeks ago, in chapter 2, the new exodus. Remember, the, uh, Matthew quotes the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. He's referring to Israel, the prophet is. Meaning the exodus out of Egypt of God's son Israel. Now the true Israel, the son of God, is called out from Egypt, through Egypt, with Mary and Joseph. As Israel goes through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness, Jesus, the true Israel, goes through the waters of baptism into the wilderness. As Israel's tested with temptations for 40 years in the wilderness to see whether they'll obey divine commands, Jesus, the true Israel, is tested whether he'll obey divine commands. Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, they failed. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, he will pass. So Jesus' reply is taken right out of the context of God challenging his son Israel that even better than the manna that was miraculously provided to them, better than that is God's commandments and his teaching. In effect, Jesus is saying, Israel failed in this, but I will not. Let's continue reading in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan quotes scripture. I'll come back to this, but Satan knows scripture better than any of us, okay? Satan quotes scripture, Psalm 91, but he twists it like he always does. Now let's just acknowledge this temptation is a little harder to relate to. I, I, I don't know about you, but I can sympathize, my family can attest to this, with being dangerously hungry or hangry after just a half a day. <laughs> let alone 40 days. But I don't think I'd have a problem resisting the temptation to throw myself off a building. So, so what, what's going on here? Well, we have to see here that Jesus' relationship with God and God's provision for him is in question. Remember, Jesus is a man who's trusting the words about his sonship, trusting God. And the temptation is to have human certainty now about God's care and dependability instantly, to have assurance that his Father will provide for him and protect him. Will Jesus live by faith and trust in God's provision or demand a sign for it immediately in his moment of weakness? As one scholar notes, demanding sensational proof is not evidence of faith, but actually evidence of doubt. To long for the visible sign 
the big miracle, is really just unbelief. It's the farthest thing from faith. As Jesus says elsewhere, an adulterous generation asks for a sign. A couple of days before Christmas, my family and I were stuck in Chicago O'Hare after missing our connection. Like thousands of others, we were part of the national nightmare. We were not at all packed for the weather, which was 40 below windchill. We were also not prepared for the news that our first possible flight back to Denver would be five days later. People were waiting in line for seven hours just to have the airline agent tell you what you already knew. We talked to people who had been waiting for several days on standby. Individual passengers, we had five. Trains were shut down. Dangerous driving conditions, not really options, okay? After one night in the airport with the specter of possibly three more nights over Christmas, it's moments like that where you're just totally aware of your total, absolute dependence on the Lord's provision. I mean, you trust that he's your loving father. He'll care for you. And there's a temptation, though, related to not being in control. And it's a temptation I succumb to often. Needing to trust God. Okay, without the knowledge of how he'll provide, what's going to happen? You want some instant assurance of how things are going to work out. I think that's related to this. If Jesus jumps here, he has immediate assurance of God's provision and dependability. But that would mean that Jesus would live by knowledge and not by faith. That desire for immediate assurance would cross over into putting God to the test, which is how Jesus answered You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here he uses a passage from the Israelites at the waters of Meribah where they tested the Lord. They said, is the Lord among us or not? Just like here with Jesus, their relationship with God is in question. Will he provide or not? So Satan takes a truth about God protecting his own and tries to twist it into what would be a self-centered Act and Jesus again passes with flying colors. Let's continue again in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Scholars note this is likely, we can't be sure, it's likely a vision as opposed to a physical place since he can see all the kingdoms of the world. The previous temptations were more subtle, but now Satan removes all pretense. Worship me. This is a test of allegiance. Now, Satan has real power. We read elsewhere in the New Testament, he's the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the God of this age. He offers Jesus another shortcut, the greatest shortcut of them all, immediate power and glory, no suffering. Again, the right end, the wrong means. Jesus will have everlasting dominion. He will have the glory of all kingdoms. He is to inherit all things. He will be given all authority. But that's later. 
We read at the end of Matthew, after his cross and resurrection, not before. His path to glory is through suffering, not apart from it. Satan says, have the glory now, apart from the suffering, apart from obedience to God. Worship me. Grab the crown without enduring the cross. Do it my way. Worship me. One commentator says it this way. Though Jesus will receive these kingdoms as his future inheritance, Satan is offering them now without the difficulty of becoming the suffering servant. But the price tag is incredibly high. Idolatry. Replacing Jesus' father with Satan as the object of worship. Again, Jesus answers from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, you shall have no other gods. He also commands Satan to be gone, and he is. And when the devil leaves, this is interesting, angels then come to minister to Jesus, ironically fulfilling their sustaining and protective role that was promised in Psalm 91 that the devil quoted. Some of you are familiar, familiar with the excellent ministry of Alistair Begg and his ministry, Truth for Life. I'm borrowing that concept for each of our sections in Scripture today. So let's consider the truth for life. Let's, let's consider the truth for our own lives we can glean from these first 11 verses. Jesus obeyed God perfectly. First, as it relates to our temptations, this is actually not the point in Matthew, but I think there's some great uh, truth here. Note that all of Satan's temptations were connected to something good. Okay, food, that's good. God's protection, also good. Jesus' reign, true and good. Satan takes what is good and twists it into something outside God's will. This is so on brand for our enemy. This is how he deceives. He takes something good and moves it outside of its rightful context, its rightful time, its rightful place. His power is in that kind of deception. Perfect example of this is sexual activity. Very powerful thing. Sex is something good God created for a specific situation and context, namely marriage. The enemy's deception is to take that very good thing and twist it outside its rightful context. Premarital sex. Adultery, perversion of what is good into something destructive and outside God's will. To overcome Satan's deceptive power, Jesus has the Spirit's power and the Scripture's power. He's led by the Spirit here, empowered by the Spirit, dependent on the Spirit, and the truth of the Scripture, which he needed to know well, didn't he? Okay, remember, Satan used Scripture too. If you don't know Scripture well, you may also be deceived by improper use of Scripture. This is very common. All kinds of false teachings about, I mentioned sexuality, but really false teaching in general, even cults are based on improper use of Scripture. That's why we need to be people of the Word. That's why we need to read our Bibles as we emphasize. Memorize the Scripture. And that's why we need to read the Bible in community. That's why we need the local church. Okay, we need to, to understand properly how the scripture's used. Okay, at Orchard, the preaching of the word from our brothers, Bible studies, home groups, also the, the global church and the church throughout time. 
okay, because of our blind spots here. Okay, this keeps us anchored and balanced so we don't get duped by a misuse of Scripture. Jesus resisted the devil in the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Scripture to accomplish God's will. And Hebrews tells us that because Jesus suffered when tempted, he's able to help us when we are tempted. Don't think he can't relate. He can. He's able to sympathize with us. Great promise from Hebrews. Because in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet did not sin. Here again, important to remember, he's resisting as a real man in human nature. We might think, oh, still, for Jesus, it's a lot easier. I mean, he's perfect. No, in in most ways, it was harder. Think about this. When you put a piece of gold in the refiner's fire, the, the purpose is to burn off all the impurities, What if there are no impurities on the gold? What if the gold is absolutely pure and there's nothing to burn off? Well, I can assure you, the fire is just as hot. In fact, the heat was ratcheted up on Jesus because he never succumbed to temptation. Those who continue to resist feel the heat most, don't they? We tend to give in so quickly. We never experience that kind of heat. Jesus experienced it to the full. So there's a lot to learn about how to battle temptation, both by what Jesus done and who Jesus is. But I think more to the point for Matthew here is that Jesus was the perfectly obedient one. He did what Adam and Israel did not do. Adam and Eve failed in their temptation in the garden. Jesus passed. Israel failed in their temptations in the wilderness. Jesus passed. And as he said before his baptism, he is fulfilling all righteousness. He is doing what needed to be done in redemptive history by this son of God, servant, Messiah. And so number two in your outline, now Jesus is prepared to begin his ministry and he does so in Galilee. Let's continue in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying that repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the Son of God is fully prepared by undergoing baptism and testing, and Jesus is ready to launch his ministry. Now, the main point here is the location, which I'll come back to in a minute. But just note, Jesus begins to preach the same message we saw from John last week. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your disobedience to God back to him because the kingdom is at hand. We spent a lot of time, I would encourage you to listen to the message last week if you missed it. We spent a lot of time on this phrase, so I'll just summarize it here. When Jesus says kingdom is at hand, it's in the process of starting. It means God will exercise his royal authority in a new way through his own person and ministry. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and he has come to fulfill multiple threads of prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures. 
Matthew quotes Isaiah again here, that a light has dawned in this dark world. God's kingdom is here, and this is good news for all the people, as Luke says. Now, Matthew makes a point here to show fulfillment of an Isaiah prophecy regarding the location of Jesus' ministry. The center of all Jewish religious activity, of course, was in Judea, in Jerusalem in particular. It's where the temple was. It's where the priests and scholars were. Galilee was more rural. Okay, less educated people. They, they spoke with a distinct accent. Uh, we, we, you might remember, uh, if you know the story of Peter, when he denies Jesus, people pick up on the fact that he was a Galilean by the way he talks. So it was, it was strange to people that the Messiah would have anything to do with Galilee. But Galileans were less tied to the tradition, less influenced by the religious elites, and perhaps more open to new teaching. Galilee also had a lot more Gentiles, which is a, a point that Matthew highlights. There were many trade routes through Galilee, whereas Jerusalem was sort of boxed in by the mountains. Galilee was wide open. In fact, I didn't know this, but there was, there was even a common saying at this time, Judea is on, is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the road to everywhere. So a lot more connections to Gentiles or non-Jewish people. Now again, this is a big focus for Matthew. The Messiah did not come just for the Jews, but for everyone. We saw in, in Greg's sermon on the genealogy at the very beginning, four prominent Gentile women in the genealogy. We saw the Magi coming from a foreign land, not Jews at all, come to worship the king. So here again, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus begins his ministry where there's a lot of Gentiles. He accentuates this in the Isaiah reference, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, right after this passage in Isaiah is the famous prophecy, for unto us a child is born, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, etc., so this king, this Messiah, this light has dawned in a dark place, a place where there are people that know nothing about the Jewish Messiah, outsiders who have no context for the coming king but live in darkness. Light is a profound metaphor throughout the scripture for Messiah and his work, the light of the world, as John says. Jesus is bringing the light right into the darkest of places. You might say that Matthew is beginning here with the end in mind. Okay, because ultimately this good news is for everyone. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus will ultimately commission his followers, remember, to make disciples in all nations. Notice also in verse 12 why Jesus goes to Galilee. John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod. Okay, Herod, again, trying to control the situation. This John needs to quit preaching, so I'm just going to take him out of the picture. Well, that plays right into God's hand. As the instrumental cause to send Jesus to Galilee of the Gentiles and begin his ministry there. As one commentator says this about Herod, it's amazing how the proud and arrogant think they can act in perfect freedom to accomplish their selfish ends when in truth their decisions and actions only trigger events that God scheduled before the foundation of the world. Now, just one truth for life from this section. 
Jesus is a light for anyone in darkness. Okay, this, this move to, to Galilee of the Gentiles foreshadows the ultimate plan of God, that the gospel of the kingdom reached not only Israel, but the nations. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, back in the promise to Abraham, he had the Gentiles in mind. All the families of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, this one who has now come in the person of Jesus. All people, even you, even me. Make no mistake, without God's intervention, every single one of us lives in darkness without hope in this life and without hope in the life to come. But the light has dawned in Jesus Christ. And by repentance and turning to him, you can be saved. You can enter the light. Please do that. Number three, Jesus calls the first disciples. Let's start reading in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus calls here the first, of, first four of his eventual 12 disciples, and you could mistakenly read this like a random person comes up to these guys and tells them to follow him, and they just blindly do it. I mean, that, that, that's not what's happening here. That would be irrational, okay? They're not following a person they don't know. They knew very well who Jesus was for probably over a year. In fact, we know from John's gospel that Andrew and others were previously disciples of John the Baptist. And we saw last week John had been instructing the crowds about who Jesus was, and certainly John's disciples had as much knowledge as anyone about Jesus. So while it is certainly striking that these men drop everything and follow Jesus, it's not irrational. Note that Jesus' call to discipleship is a commandment, not an invitation. They immediately respond without delay. Now, Jesus gives these men a new vision, reframing their profession to be fishers of men. The kind of fishing they did, of course, was not like we do today, dropping lines in the water or trolling or fly fishing. These men cast huge nets over the side of the boat and trapped as many fish as they could and pinched the nets to the side of the boat and pulled the fish inside. Jesus is going to train them to cast the net of the gospel into the sea of humanity and bring in as many as they can. One interesting twist in the metaphor is that when you pull fish out of the water, you're taking them out of life to their death. But when you're fishing for men, when you're telling people about Jesus and the gospel, you're, you're pulling them out of death into life, literally rescuing them from hell. Now let's just think about this in terms of discipleship. Jesus calls them to put himself at the very center of their lives. You can see it in what they do, in their decision-making, their jobs, their families. All that was important to them took a back seat 
to Jesus. Their lifestyle and priorities were radically changed and reoriented around him. Following Jesus for them meant traveling with him, obeying him, which would lead to real hardship and suffering. It wasn't their best life now, in other words. So in terms of truth for life, let's consider that following Jesus is a total radical surrender. There is a real problem, my friends, in the church today, the broader church, where people sort of view Jesus as an add-on to their life, sort of almost like a tithe. Like, I'm going to give 10% of my life to Jesus, the other 90% is for me. That's not Christianity. That's not discipleship. That's not following Jesus. Jesus isn't something you add on to your life. Jesus replaces your life. Okay, these fishermen, they didn't say, yeah, I really like Jesus. He's given me some great values that sort of, sort of round me out. You know, I, I feel like a, a, a balanced fisherman, just better perspective on when I'm fishing because of Jesus. That's not what it was about. Jesus takes over your life. He's your master whom you now obey in everything. Old loyalties or loves must be subordinated to him. Jesus says in Luke 9, no one who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Hagner says this, the call of God through Jesus is sovereign and absolute in its authority. The response of those who are called is to be both immediate and absolute, involving a complete break with old loyalties. This is going to look differently for each of us, but the truth is the same. Following Jesus means turning over your life to his control and authority. And for each of us, Jesus goes right to the heart, eventually, of where the conflict of loyalties is going to be. And he says, do what I say in that area too. Many so-called Christians today have tragically lost this understanding of the gravity and cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. There's probably no greater indicator of this in today's culture than how many in the church have capitulated in the area of biblical sexuality. The increasing number of so-called churches affirming the LGBT lifestyle, it betrays not only a disregard for the authority of Scripture, but more to the point here, it betrays a lack of appreciation for how radical a surrender is necessary for anyone to follow Jesus. Let me just illustrate this. Sam Albury talks about this in his own life. Albury is a prominent speaker for the Gospel Coalition. I love him. An outstanding author, Many good books. He is same-sex attracted. Okay, his entire life, he's only been attracted to other men. So as an obedient Christian, he's a celibate man because that's the Christ-honoring lifestyle he can live. And he says, sometimes people will say to him, well, the gospel's harder for you, isn't it? Because it goes against who you really are. And I love his response. If you think the gospel has slotted in easily to your life, I don't think it's the gospel of this Jesus you received. If you think the cost of discipleship is too high for your LGBT friends, then you think it's too high for everyone. So if you're a Christian who thinks that, it's probably a sign you've not counted the cost 
of discipleship in your own life because Jesus demands everything from all of us because everything from all of us is going to be so much better in his hands. So, so Alberry says, the cost for me is just one example of the cost for everyone. For each one of us, Jesus is going to put his finger on something that seems sacred to us. And he's going to say, no, you've got to trust me with that. And Albury says, it's always worth it. Not in a grit your teeth because one day you'll be in heaven sort of way. But even in this life, it's worth it. Because Jesus is that good. Finally, let's consider number four, that Jesus reverses the curse. Let's start reading in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew gives us sort of a summary of Jesus' ministry for the next few years and, and, or, or next 20 chapters that uh, we will examine over the next 10 months or so. And it involves three big categories of activities, teaching, preaching, and healing. I just want to spend a minute on each. Teaching likely refers to when Jesus exposited what we know as our Old Testament. It was very common for visiting rabbis to be invited to speak in the synagogue. We know Jesus did that often. Preaching, closely related to this in his case, or proclaiming, as it says in the ESV, refers to Jesus proclaiming the good news or gospel of the kingdom coming. In other words, how he and his ministry fits into what the Old Testament promised. This new age of the Messiah, the Son of God, God reigning in a new way through him. Both of these, teaching and preaching, are obviously communicating truths with words. But Jesus wasn't just talk. He didn't just preach the kingdom, but also demonstrated its power. And that's what we see in his healings. Matthew explains people came with every kind of disease or infirmity. Jesus would make them well, physical healing. Jesus also performed spiritual healing over demonic forces, which perhaps demonstrated this power in an even greater fashion. Greg Beale has a great insight here that these healings in the Gospels function like parables for what Jesus will accomplish on the cross. A parable is a story from everyday life to illustrate a deeper truth. We're going to see Jesus later use this teaching method. But here, when Jesus heals someone physically by restoring their body, or when he heals someone spiritually by casting out demons, it is a lived-out parable which illustrates a deeper truth about his ultimate purpose for coming, to reverse the curse, to undo what was done in the fall with Satan and Adam and Eve when everything was broken and corrupted. Again, that's the origin of disease and death and demonic influence and corruption. Through his cross and resurrection, the new creation will be inaugurated. 
The cross will be the beginning of the end for Satan. The cross will be the beginning of the end for disease, for death. As Isaiah says, by his wounds we will be healed. So these healings and exorcisms here, or casting away demons here, these all function like lived out parables for what Jesus came to do. He came to defeat Satan and to heal us holistically, body and spirit. To bring in the new creation with with spiritual rebirth and eventually new bodies. So every time we see Jesus heal someone, it communicates to us. This is what Jesus and his ministry is about. Jesus is about making the body new and right again. Jesus is about restoring the goodness of creation. Every time we see Jesus cast out a demon, it communicates to us. Jesus is about defeating Satan. And all the effects of the fall. Ultimately, again, these healings point to an ultimate, a greater truth of what he would do in his victory on the cross. And note, there's no illness, is there? There's no disease, no affliction that Jesus cannot heal. There's no demon that he cannot cast out. He has absolute power over all of it. But friends, I don't want this to just be academic. Okay, this is really interesting. At least it is to me, Beale's insight here with the parable. Really interesting to me. Maybe it's interesting to you too. But sometimes when we're studying deeply of these things in biblical theology, where we're breaking down truths and analyzing, we can be like a botanist, picking apart the flower under the microscope to see how all the pieces fit together. And we can miss out on the beauty of the flower itself. So let's just step back here and look at Jesus and his beautiful compassion. Everyone is coming. Everyone is coming to him in great need, feeling hopeless. These people are afflicted with debilitating disease or illness. They're oppressed by satanic forces. They're miserable. They're desperate. And Jesus expends his loving energy, not in a mass thing, but each person individually, one after another, he heals them all. This is the heart of Jesus. One of the most beautiful titles for Jesus throughout the ages has been the son of compassion. This is how he starts his ministry. Okay, Davies and Allison put it well. The first act of the Messiah is not the imposition of his commandments, but the giving of himself. In our last truth for life, please consider this Jesus this morning. I don't know what you think about God. We all come from different places, different experiences. I think it's a safe bet, though, that you know something about the pain and brokenness of this world. And we can project our view of God from what we see in the world. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God's being. So if you want to know what God is like, examine this man, Jesus. When he walked this earth, as we see here, he deeply cared about people. People people came to him, they were at the end of the rope. They felt hopeless. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. 
Have you ever felt hopeless? Know that Jesus saw them and Jesus sees you. And he has immense compassion. He hates brokenness. He came to heal. He knows your weakness. He knows your hurts. And he's just compassionate today as he's ever been. But friends, just like these miracles and healings, they pointed to something ultimate and more significant. Your pain points to something greater as well, a need of something ultimate. All these people that were healed in this story eventually died of something else. But the ultimate healing that Jesus secured through the cross and resurrection is eternal. It is an everlasting healing. All of us without exception have been deeply affected by sin and its corruption and death. Effects of our own sin, effects of others' sin against us, and just sin's destructive power in the world and on our own bodies. Jesus came ultimately to deal with that problem. It was through his death and resurrection that he dealt with it. He suffered that we might be saved from eternal pain. Satan tried to get Jesus to abandon that mission in today's story. But as Doriani says, each time Jesus said no to Satan, he said yes to the cross. And to benefit from what he's done there, you must be a part of this kingdom that he speaks of. As one man wrote, to enter this kingdom is not to cross a border passport in hand. It is to yield to God's reign in Christ. If you have not done that, then this brokenness and evil will have the last word in your life. You not only have no other hope in this broken world, you more importantly have no hope in the life to come. Listen, Jesus offers an extreme salvation, and it requires an extreme surrender. He is the king of this kingdom. He obeyed God perfectly when we could not, and he came as a light to anyone in darkness who will surrender their life to him, who will look to him for salvation. He has overcome everything that's gone wrong in this world and everything wrong in you by the power of his cross and the glory of his resurrection. The light has dawned. Will you come out of the darkness and receive his light today? He is rich in compassion. He wants to heal you. Will you yield to his sovereign rule in every area of your life? Will you totally and radically follow Jesus? He is that good. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture we have of him in today's story. We look so forward to seeing him, just the picture of him enriched as we go through this series on kingdom life. What a beautiful Savior. I thank you so much for your word today. I pray, Lord, for those here who are still in darkness. I pray that you make them born again. Let them see that regardless of what they're holding on to, whatever is so sacred in their life, it's not worth it. To bend the knee to Jesus Christ, receive his forgiveness, and receive his light. Thank you so much for all you've done. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.